be helpful if you were able to turn back in the Bible to First uh, Peter chapter two, page one two one eight, because uh, I said there are quite a lot of verses for us to work through here. Uh, so it would be good for you to be able to keep a bit of an eye on the text as we do that. <clears throat> Not least to spot the bits I'm glossing over because I can't do it all. Um, let's ask for God's help as we come to this. Father, this is your living word still today, um, and we pray that you'll speak to us. These verses are quite challenging in some ways. Uh, we pray that you'll stimulate our thinking uh, and help us to see how we should rightly apply them in our lives. But whatever it is you want to say to us this evening, we pray that we will be open to hear that and that you will speak by the power of your spirit. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you say that our society as a whole is a respectful one? Or perhaps it would be fairer to ask, how respectful is our society? It's probably fair to say that for many, they will respect those who have earned their respect. It's not something that comes automatically with a particular job or position. Many times have you heard people being interviewed on the news saying the police are a disgrace or our politicians are a disgrace or those social workers are a disgrace or those teachers are a disgrace or whatever. I could go on. In general, people are quite quick to criticize and condemn. And overall levels of respect for those in authority are not what they would once have been. Now, there, of course, were many people in the past who abused their authority, and that can still be the case today. But this evening, we're looking at some challenging verses from 1 Peter because they seem to be saying that as Christians, we should be respectful of those in authority, whether or not they have earned our respect. In fact, Peter goes further than respect. He talks several times in these verses about submission freely doing what others want us to do, even if that's not what we want, and even if it's uncomfortable for us to do that. As I said earlier on, this passage is a long one, um, and probably I wouldn't have chosen just quite as long a one, um, and so I'm not going to do justice to it because I think it'd probably take about three sermons, um, and I doubt that you want to listen to that length this evening. So we won't go into every verse in detail, but I do want us to get some uh, overall thrust in terms of what this section is about because it does seem to hang together, so I can understand why these parameters have been set. <clears throat> um, I'm just going to draw out a couple of threads which I think are running through these verses. One is that of submission, which I've just referred to, and the other is the idea of the fear of God. The two of them seem to be linked, uh, although that's probably not the only logic at work in these verses, so somebody else could preach something quite different from this passage. But I think that certainly this idea of the fear of God and linked in with submission uh, does seem to flow through these verses. I uh, apologize in advance, I've got four points and they're not going to appear on the screen, so you're just going to have to think and concentrate a bit harder. Uh, but from them, I want us to get the idea that the aspects of Christian submission, which Peter talks about in these verses, are bound up with and even flow from a right fear of God. What we've got to remember is that 
the kind of things that Peter is asking of the Christians to whom he is writing are not things that are easy to do. He's not asking them to behave in the way they naturally would or the way everyone else around them is behaving. So if we're thinking in terms of what I want to do or what I think is right or what my friends think is right, we're not necessarily going to behave in the ways that these verses would urge us to. The only way, as far as I can see it, that we'll be able to follow what Peter outlines in this passage is if we have a right fear of God. Now, I'm sure you've heard it said many times before that fear of God doesn't mean being afraid or terrified of him. Certainly, that shouldn't be the case for Christians. As we understand the grace and mercy and goodness and kindness of God revealed throughout the whole of the Bible, we don't see a God who wants to terrify us. But we do see a God who is different from us, who is absolutely not like us, because he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and utterly perfect in all his ways. When God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and says, I am who I am, he's saying, the only being in the universe who comes close to me is me. There is no one else like me. You cannot compare me to anyone or anything else. So God is not just like a better version of us. And perhaps at times, because we know of his love for us in Christ and his willingness to hear us when we pray and the assurance of his comfort and presence and blessing in our lives, we can forget how awesome and holy he is. And so we perhaps at times don't treat him with the reverence that we should. One aspect of recapturing our fear of God is, I think, conveyed in the reminder in verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2 that God is going to come to this earth. When Peter speaks about the day God visits us, he's speaking of the second coming of Christ. And we know from Scripture that this will be an absolutely terrifying day for those who don't know God, those who have mocked him or ignored him or actively defied him, will suddenly discover that they have made the most horrible miscalculation. They reckon that there was no God, or no need to fear and reverence God, and suddenly they discover that he is there in all his majesty and power and glory, and that is a terrifying thing. For those who have scorned and despised Christians, they'll be forced to acknowledge that Christians were the ones who were doing the right thing. And they'll also be forced to accept the rightness of God's salvation of his followers and his judgment on all those who have set their faces against him. Now, just to be clear, I, I think that when Peter says about pagans seeing the good lives of Christians and glorifying God on the day he visits us, that he says in verse 12, it seems that at least in part, He's suggesting that some non-believers will be won round. They'll be converted when they see Christians living differently. And so they will glorify God because they've come to see that he is the one that they too should fear. And they have submitted their lives and wills to him before he returns. At the same time, though, it's not inconsistent with what we read in the Bible to argue that part of the glorifying of God that will happen when Christ returns is that pagans will acknowledge the rightness of what God is doing, even as he judges them and vindicates Christians. 
And for Christians, there is both the reassurance of vindication at the second coming, but also the reminder that we are living our lives here in the light of Christ's return. Peter in chapter 1 has been talking of the eternal inheritance that we have and the fact that as Christians we are exiles in this world. It is not our final home and the powers of this world are not the ones who have the ultimate power. God is in sovereign control and one day he will be the only power left. So we need to live our lives aware of that. Now, I'm not pretending that this is easy or natural. Because this world is all we know, and because we can see humans all around us, some of them may be making life difficult for us, and some of them have more power over us than we would like, we can forget that God is the one whom we should fear more than anyone else. We should care more about what he thinks. We should care more about what honors him. Because it's when we start to do that that we gain a right perspective on this world and what is going on in it. So what is it that a right fear of God should enable us to do as we live for him in the light of his return? Well, the first thing that we see in these verses is that right fear of God enables Christians to submit to earthly rulers. Right fear of God enables Christians to submit to earthly rulers. That's what verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2 are all about. As Peter urges those to whom he's writing to submit to every human authority, whether that be the emperor himself or those he puts in place as governors under him. Do you notice though why he says they're to do this? In verse 13 it says, for the Lord's sake. They're to do this because God wants them to. And if they fear God, then they will submit to those whom he has put in place as human rulers. He even says in verse 17, fear God, and then adds, honor the emperor. Not fear the emperor. He's not saying the emperor is more important than God. And he's not saying obey the emperor when he wants you to zone your faith or deny God. But he is calling for an appropriate honoring of those who have been set in authority by God. It's important when we're thinking about this to remember that Roman emperors were not all around good guys. It may well be that the emperor at the time that Peter was writing was Nero. And even if you don't know much about him, you'll know that he wasn't the model of restraint, especially when it came to his treatment of Christians. After the great fire of Rome in AD 64, he blamed the fire on Christians, and this led to widespread persecution of them. At the same time, though, the feeling that we get from Peter's letter is not so much that Christians are all being martyred for their faith right at this point. It's not that they're being thrown to the lions just quite yet. And so he was probably writing a bit earlier in Nero's reign. And although Nero was far from perfect, the earlier years of his reign had not been catastrophic, either for Christians nor for Roman citizens in general. We've got to remember that anarchy is never seen in the Bible nor in history as a good thing. And what Peter is acknowledging here is that Christians should be those who recognize that having a system of rule in place is a good thing. Our political leaders are human and flawed and can never ultimately save us. But they can be used by God to bring some level of stability to society and to enable all people to function and to coexist without everything just falling apart. 
And so as Christian citizens and subjects, we should be those who submit to earthly rulers, and not just when they make decisions we agree with. Now, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be concerned about laws that seem to undermine God's ways and values, nor am I saying that we must obey the law of the land if it forces us to disobey God. But Peter's concern here is not really with the exceptions. It's interesting, isn't it, that often we are quite concerned about the exceptions. When might it be right to go against the laws of the land? But Peter seems to be saying, a lot of the time, there's no reason to disobey the law, and so we shouldn't. And in fact, he says that Christians should be known as people who keep the law. And not because we're scared of going to prison if we don't, but because we fear God. And also because we don't want people to have reason to point the finger at us with some justification. When he talks in verse 15 about silencing the ignorant talk of foolish people, he doesn't want non-Christians to be able to accuse Christians of not being good citizens or of just keeping those laws it suits us to keep. Keeping the law is not a uniquely Christian thing to do. We tend to think that people who aren't Christians will be a lot quicker to break the law if it suits them. And there may be some truth in that in some instances, but it's not universally true. Some non-Christians are scrupulously honest about how they complete their tax return. And so they'd be right to be horrified if they discovered that we weren't quite so honest. Some non-Christians may obey the speed limit. I know we find that hard to believe because speed limits is generally one of those things where we just let ourselves off the hook, isn't it? But actually, as Christians, we should be saying, well, generally I do try to obey the speed limit because someone has worked out that there's a reason for it. And my fear of God means I'm going to keep it, even though it doesn't always suit me and I don't always see the point. I could go on and forgive me for citing very obvious examples there, but I do think there's one other point to be made in relation to submitting to earthly rulers. And that is that as Christians, we must be prepared to submit to the sanctions imposed when we break the law. If we're fined for not getting our tax return in on time, we pay the fine. If we're caught for speeding, we take the points and we don't try to find a loophole that gets us off when we know we're clearly guilty. But it also may mean that a day may come for some of us as Christians, when refusing to obey the law because it goes against God's laws mean we go to prison. And we need to be prepared for that as well. Let's not forget that Peter himself had been imprisoned for his faith. But in doing that, he was submitting to the authorities that God had put in place. Even though in many ways he could have said, they have no right to do this. What power have they over me? I should be allowed my freedom of religion. A right fear of God enables Christians to submit to earthly rulers. But there's a second thing this passage teaches us, and that is that a right fear of God enables Christians to submit to unjust suffering. So we submit to earthly rulers. We also submit to unjust suffering. You notice as Peter moves on in verse 18, he addresses slaves, telling them that in reverent fear of God, they're to submit themselves to their masters. Again, we have that link between the fear of God that leads to submission to some degree of earthly or human rule. 
Now, of course, when it comes to slaves, it's hard for us to draw exact parallels. Slaves in the first century were not like slaves in 18th century Britain or America, nor indeed like modern day slaves. They had a lot more rights and freedoms, and yet, at the same time, it's not quite the same as modern day employees and the kind of employment rights that we have uh, in our country. The interesting thing is that while verses 19 and 20 have that general context of slavery, which is presumably one in, in which some degree of suffering at the hands of a cruel master could be felt, there's arguably something quite general being said about undeserved suffering. And certainly that can translate into our settings. Peter's saying, if people take you to task at work because you're always late or you're too busy chatting to do the work that you're paid to do, don't make out that they're victimizing you for being a Christian. But if you are an exemplary employee willing to go the extra mile and yet you're passed over for promotion or you're not included in a group that are going out after work or people are actually telling lies about you, you should still get on with your job doing it as wholeheartedly as you can because you fear God and not your employer. And this presumably can extend beyond the workplace because Peter encourages his hearers by reminding them of the example of Christ who suffered unjustly, not as a slave at the hands of his master, but as the utterly innocent captive at the hands of those who had no desire for justice, but simply wanted to silence him. As Christians, we will sometimes suffer unfairly. But God says to us through Peter that we must be prepared for that because that was the experience of Jesus. I don't think that means that we can never defend ourselves. But what Peter seems to be saying is that there is a powerful apologetic for the gospel when Christians suffer, and yet despite that suffering, they're not filled with hatred and rage against those who have caused that suffering. People who have something to complain about and yet don't complain can have quite an impact on others. Not least because we live in a society where everyone seems ready to complain about the least little thing. Sometimes people seem to find rights we never imagined could even exist, and they're very quick to claim those rights. Whereas if it's Christians, we're not always going on about our rights, or what is due to me, or how I have been mistreated. We will stand out as being different. Now, I'm not pretending that I have all the answers in terms of when we should speak and when we should be silent. But one thing that's clear from these verses is that it's not going to be easy to be silent. It's not going to be our natural reaction to suffer when we don't deserve it and not make a fuss. And the only way that we will be able to do that is because we fear God. And we know, as verse 20 says, that our acceptance of undeserved suffering is commendable before God. God understands that when we hang on in there, even when we're not being well-treated, we're doing it for him, not for the sake of those who are making us suffer. And let's not forget that undeserved suffering because of our faith in Jesus helps us in some perhaps very small way to understand something of the suffering that Jesus went through for us. He didn't deserve it at all. And yet think, of the extreme suffering that he endured 
And yet as he did that, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, as verse 23 says. As Christians, we shouldn't always expect to be vindicated in this life. Sometimes people will make life very difficult for us and they will seem to get away with it. But God sees and knows all that is going on. And because we believe that, we can suffer even when there is no happy ever after right now. Right fear of God enables Christians to submit to unjust suffering. And then finally, Peter turns to that closest of human relationships to marriage and shows us how a right fear of God should enable those of us who are married to conduct ourselves in ways which seem quite countercultural. In some respects, you may think this part as we move into chapter three is the most controversial. And you may think I'm shortchanging you because I've spoken for long enough already. And I don't want to go on for another 20 minutes. There are two things though that I want to say and they go hand in hand from verses one to seven of chapter three. The first is that right fear of God enables the Christian wife to submit to her husband. And the second is that right fear of God enables the Christian husband to care for his wife. It's important to notice that wives and husbands are both addressed in these verses, although much more is said to the wives. It's not clear why that is, but we can certainly see why today women might balk at the kind of language that Peter's using and might need to have it explained as to why they should submit to their husbands. Notice that he's not telling them to submit to abuse by their husbands, nor is he saying that all women should submit to all men. He's simply talking about the marriage relationship. But what he's saying is shockingly countercultural in our day, and presumably must have been to some extent in Peter's day as well. Otherwise, he wouldn't have needed to spell it out and explain why women are to submit to their husbands. We live in a society that believes that equality is only possible where no distinction is made between men and women, and which cannot accept that God created men and women as equal but different. Men and women are equally precious to God, but they're not identical. If we were, then there would be no need for two sexes. We could all be women or all be men. And God has said that within marriage, he wants the husband to take the lead. It's something that Adam failed to do right back in Eden when he allowed himself to be led by Eve and sin entered the world. But being Christians doesn't mean that we seek to undo the damage of the fall by saying that there are no distinctions of roles within marriage and that it's an equal partnership where neither party can have the final say. Besides, surely that's virtually impossible, that there will never be an occasion when a husband and wife disagree about something and both cannot get their own way. Surely there must be times when you have to say, look, it's not what I would choose, but I respect your decision. And Peter's saying that at those points, the wife should be the one to respect the husband's decision, which of course is likely to send some women into orbit. How can he possibly have the last word? How unfair is that? Isn't that flinging open the doors to bullying and abuse? And all of that might be true if the husband had no responsibility in the relationship other than to make sure he always got what he wanted. But what Peter says is far from the whole story in terms of a husband's responsibility, but he does say this in verse seven, that a husband is to be considerate towards his wife, which must mean caring for her, taking account of her interests, listening to her and understanding her. 
And sometimes making a final decision that is more what his wife wants than what he wants because of his love and care for her. What makes Peter's words even harder is that he envisages that some women may be married to non-Christian husbands. And even then he urges them to submit. Not presumably if their husbands are asking them to sin, but to submit in all other areas in the hope that their conduct may win over their husband and help him to see the beauty of the gospel, which enables his wife to behave in this way. And how is it that she can do this? Well, verse 2 talks about the purity and reverence of your lives. And in that word reverence, we again have the idea of fearing God. In verse 5, he speaks of the holy women of the past putting their hope in God. There again, we get that idea that having a right fear of God enables us to do something that we would never naturally want to do. When we're conscious that we're living our, our lives before God and in fear of him, then we will be given the grace to submit because we know we're doing it for him and we know that he sees, he knows, he cares, even if no one else seems to. So does all of this mean that Christians should be doormats? Does it mean that we keep quiet about our Christian faith if we think it might make life uncomfortable for us? I don't think we can automatically say either of those things based on this passage. In fact, I suspect Peter would be saying to us, if it's never uncomfortable for you to be a Christian, then are you really fearing God and living for him? Fear of man, which causes us to keep our heads down and say nothing, is not what Peter is advocating. But he's calling us to live in ways that are not universally reflected in our culture. It might take a bit of working out for us as to what that means. And I haven't given you all the answers this evening. But maybe we need to come right back to the start and think about whether we really do fear God and what that might mean for how we respond to the many challenges that life throws at us. If our citizenship is in heaven, then this world, this life, is not all there is. And fulfilling our potential being loved and respected by all those we know, avoiding pain and discomfort at all costs, those actually shouldn't be the things that matter most to us. And surely as Christians, we shouldn't be known as the most strident people around, always defending our rights, always giving off about others and what they've done to us. Isn't it so much more glorifying to God for us to be model citizens because we love and fear the king of kings. In our culture where everyone is concerned about their rights and where everyone's encouraged to stand up for those rights, Christians who submit because they love and fear God will stand out, but only because of the grace and power of God at work within us. That won't always be easy, but God promises that he will give us the strength to live in these ways. If we remember that we're living out our lives before him, the one who is the king of kings, the one who will return one day, will reveal what we have done, how we have sought to live for him in ways that honor him, will reward us for that. 
and will judge those who have had no regard for him and his standards and who at times have maybe sought to make our lives very difficult indeed. Are we prepared to be those who live looking forward to that day, but not trying to get everything right now, not always looking for all the vindication now, but trusting ourselves as Jesus did to the one who judges justly and the one who has shown us his amazing grace and mercy in that gift of his son for us. Let's pray together. Father, we're sometimes not quite sure what the takeaway is going to be from looking at your word, but we pray this evening that you'll help us at least to continue to reflect a little bit on what it means to submit ourselves either as citizens or as those who are suffering unjustly at the hands of others or those of us within marriages. Lord, help us to think about what it means to honor you, to fear you, and how that right fear of you then affects how we conduct ourselves. And may we do that in ways that bring glory to you, even if people still want to mock us or deride us. Lord, we pray that they will not have any real reason to do that because we are those who are living lives of submission. And may that indeed be something that is attractive to the world around. Give us your strength, we pray, as we seek to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.